Warning, the following story is graphic and violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. One day, a security camera installer named Dennis Rader was passing by the Otero family house when he noticed Julie Otero taking her children, Joey, 9 years of age, and Josie, 11 years of age, to school. He decided to kill them all. He stalked the family for two months and then cut the phone lines to their home on January 15, 1974 in Wichita, Kansas. What he did to the four family members that day is unthinkable. The bind, torture, kill, serial killer was born. I'm George Jarrett and this is Diamond State Murder Board. Deborah Sue Williamson turned off her television, grabbed her keys and purse and puzzle book as she readied to head out the door. The newlywed 18-year-old was supposed to meet her husband, Doug, at work. As she entered the carport of their home that night, something went terribly wrong. She was stabbed 17 times, and to this day, her murderer remains free. Read about Debbie's case in the newly released book, Silent Silhouette, written by investigative journalist George Jared and his investigative partner, Army Counterintelligence Officer Jennifer Buchholz. Read how the team tracked down the case file, original witnesses and suspects, and a story that stretches from the Texas deserts to the Ozark Mountains in Missouri to the Mississippi Delta. The team had two simple burning questions they wanted answers to. Who killed Deborah Sue and why? Get a copy of Silent Silhouette on Amazon today or wherever you get your books. Welcome back to Diamond State Murder Board. I'm your host, George Jared. Joined in studio today with our co-host and producer and one of my very best friends, Andrew Brown. Andrew, how are you? It's been a minute, George, and I'm doing great, by the way. Sorry to cut off that question, but yeah, I, it's been a minute and, and uh, excited to be back in here with you. That is excellent. Uh, you know, Andrew, we've got a there's some you know we've got some cases that we've that are ongoing that we follow West Memphis three, Rebecca Gould, things like that. Don't have any updates for anybody right now in any of those cases. Um, I did contact uh, Damien Eccles, um, his PR and team, and his lawyers a couple weeks ago. I I emailed them, and so it's still slowly the case is slowly churning through the Arkans the Arkansas judicial system. Obviously, you guys know it's before the Arkansas Supreme Court where they're going to allow that touch DNA testing to be done. Um, Andrew, I actually talked to Jared Bradley. Um, we had him on uh, several episodes ago. He's the CEO of MVAC DNA testing. And, you know, Jared, um, you know, we had a conversation at CrimeCon in Orlando last weekend. And he's like, man, if they could just get me those, you know, those ligatures, he goes, I could see if there's any DNA on there. So we're all hopeful that's still going to happen. Um and as far as Rebecca Gould goes, um, there are some things that are going on behind the scenes, um, and we're going to try to get some more info out on that in the near future. But don't worry, there are some things happening, and we just want to let people know that we haven't um, given up on that case, or, or um, and we're still working it pretty hard. Andrew, I met someone at CrimeCon in Austin, Texas in 2021 who absolutely fascinated me. And so I'll t- I'll start by telling this part of the story. So 
we gave a presentation, Jennifer and I did, at CrimeCon on the Rebecca Gould case. Well, Andrew, part of the process, um, you'll go and give a presentation, and then they ask all the speakers at CrimeCon. It's the biggest, you know, like, crime-themed convention in the world. And they have it in a different host city every year. And so part of the process is they have a like a I I think it's a just a, they call it a VIP room where you can go in like you know obviously I've written several books and you know there's other people there there was all these like these shows on Netflix like The Night Crawler and uh, uh, Chris Hansen from you know the To Catch a to Predator, catch a predator guy yeah. Nancy Grace Doctor Phil all these you know people who are in that space. And so what happens is, is we go in and you, you're asked to go in there for a couple hours so that, that the people who have come to see you and hear your presentation can come in and get an autograph, take a picture with you. Do they have book. to be a VIP? Like they buy a special package for that? Or yes. Is it any, okay, gotcha. Yes, they have to buy a special package for it. Um, and so I one day I was in there doing my due diligence, you know, the two hours that they ask. Well, at the end of the two hours, I was supposed to meet Jennifer and her husband, Jesse, and Catherine Townsend from the Hell and Gone podcast. And some a bunch of other podcasters and some other people that we had met in the space, we were going to go eat dinner in downtown Austin. As I'm getting ready to leave the room, this woman walks right up to me, and she says, I just told everybody on the elevator that I'm BTK's daughter, and nobody laughed. And I looked at her. I said, are you serious? I said, the bind, torture, kill, serial killer, that's your father? And she goes, yes. And I said, okay. Come over here. There was like this little, there was like a table and they were serving wine. And I said, we're going to have a chat. And so we sat down and we had a conversation for a couple of hours. And, um, you know, I always wanted to bring her on to the podcast. And um, we we had set up, I think, at least one time where she was going to come on. And I had read her book, which is called A Serial Killer's Daughter, which is fantastic. Um, I would I would suggest it to anyone. It's a New York Times bestseller. And um, she had some personal stuff going on at that time. Uh, didn't know it at the time, but she actually was in the first stages of getting a divorce. And it actually quite literally was starting on the day that she was supposed to come on. But fortunately, um, you know, she's gotten past that. You know, her and I text periodically. Um, and so I was in at CrimeCon in Orlando last weekend, and she was there, obviously. And so we sat down and had a conversation with her, and we recorded it. And so here in a few minutes, we're going to play that for you. But before we do that, Andrew, I think what we need to do is probably just kind of... Andrew, and you said before we started recording, you're not very familiar with BTK. No, I'm not, for sure. And it's one that I know my wife is, and I know that people who who um, who study true crime or, or have a, a, an understanding of it, it's a pretty big name. And I, I have heard the terminology before, but I don't know too much of the history of of these crimes. Okay. So the bind, torture, kill, serial killer, um, is a guy named Dennis Rader. He, uh, lived in the Wichita, Kansas area for a lot of his life. Um, he got married, he had two children, his daughter, Carrie, and then he has a son named Brian. He is considered like the family man serial killer. And the reason they consider him that is because he had this totally normal life where, you know, early on in his life, he was installing, ADT security cameras, and then he became like a code enforcement officer in Wichita. So he would be the guy that would be out like measuring your grass to see if it was too tall. And if it was too tall and you didn't mow it, then, you know, he, he would write you a citation. Um, he was an upstanding member of his church. Um, and um, 
a lot of people, especially his neighbors and friends and people who knew him, were in total and utter shock when he was arrested in February of 2005. And so he's confessed to 10 murders. There's a lot of speculation, and Karen, I've talked about this, that he has many more victims than that. And so what I want to do is I've actually pulled up the biography of Dennis Rader, and I just want to, and I'm just going to read from biography, um, just because I want to make sure we keep um, the this stuff accurate. And so his first victims were um, Joseph, Julie, Josephine, and Joseph Jr. Otero. And quite literally what happened, Andrew, is he... I don't know if he was walking by or driving by, but he noticed Julie and the two younger kids, and he immediately started fantasizing about killing them. And so um, he stalked them for about two months, didn't know them, had no clue. Well, then finally, on uh, January 15th, 1974, he cut the phone lines to the house. He got he, he went in the house, he had a gun. He ordered the, the, the mom and the daughter up onto a bed in a bedroom, and he ordered the, the, the boy and the dad on the floor. He bound them, and then he would place, like, bags over the boy's head, over, over their heads, and he would suffocate them, and then he would take the bag off, and then he would suffocate them some more. And so he was torturing them, basically. And at one point, the mother had passed out, and she woke up, and she looked over and saw her son, and she said something to the effect of, I hope, you know, I hope God saves your soul. You killed my son. So he killed her son right in front of her and, and, and strangled him. And so then he strangled the mom. He strangled the dad. He took the little girl down to the basement, and he hung her from like a, like a, uh, like a joist. Um, and they found, um, and I'm sorry to be graphic, but they found some semen next to where her body was found. And so, and he, and he, he told people that he got the, the gratification he really got was, was the torturing and the binding and all that other stuff. And so, um, they had no, you know, when the, police arrived, they have absolutely no clue who's killed this family. Um, and actually, uh, I should put, point this out. One of the Otero's older son, Charlie, he was 15. He wasn't in the home when the attack occurred. He actually came home and found his mom, dad, brother, and sister dead like this. Wow. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine how shocking it was. So then, a short time after that, um, he... He would stalk people, Andrew. He would, and it was random. And that was what was so weird about it. Um, there was a woman named Catherine Bright. Um, she, was a young, she was a young woman living on her own. Um, he actually was waiting for her in her apartment not long after the attack on the Otero family. I think it was in April of that same year. And um, he waited on her um, and he attacked her. Well, her brother, Kevin, actually arrived in the apartment. He shot Kevin twice, but Kevin was able to get away. And to our knowledge at this point, he's the only person who's ever escaped BTK. But his sister died um, from being strangled by this guy. And um, so anyway, um, he one thing that was very, you know, like we just did that two-part episode on Zodiac. Mm -hmm. You know, Zodiac would send these taunting letters to media and police. Well, BTK would do the same thing. And here's the thing, Andrew. He knew things about these crimes in particular that only the killer could know. So the police knew that who they were dealing with. They knew that all these crimes were connected. Because I think, you know, 
later on when he actually gets caught, um, you, you're wondering yourself, well, how could he? How can you specifically connect him to these these ten murders? Well, because he would send letters, and in some cases, like he Andrew, he would steal like the woman's like license, like her license, and then he would actually. I think he mailed one with a letter that he mailed to like one of the newspapers. He actually mailed the license just to prove that he had been the one who, because it had been missing from this person's possession when they found the body. Right. He also came up with the code word, bind, torture, kill. Huh. So he came up with his own, I guess, serial killer moniker. Right. And um, so one thing about it, um, and Carrie and I talked about this, a lot of the people that he murdered, and he murdered you know, mostly women, but he obviously murdered some children, he ob- and he murdered some, some men as well, at least one, um, and tried to murder another one. So he, he had no... Uh, his, his M.O., he wanted to attack women. There's no question about that. But his M.O. was kind of... Um, I, I guess it would be harder to track. You know, Ted Bundy just went after young college-age women, so everyone knew where he, what he was yeah. doing, even when he was on the run. Um but, you know, BTK was a little bit different. And he, it's interesting, Andrew, because he started in 1974. His last confirmed kill was 1991. So that's a 16-year period. He kills 10 people. You know, it seems if it seems as if maybe he slowed down killing people um, after his kids were born. And the thing about Carrie, and you can read about this in her wonderful book, um, she had a pretty normal childhood. Yeah. And, you know, they went on camping trips. They went on fishing trips. Um, and he was considered like a loving father or someone in the house. Very, yes. Very much involved in the family. He was like a Cub Scout, Boy Scout leader. Um, he and very active in that stuff. And, um, you know, uh, when I was talking to her, I said, and she, you know, she came up with a couple of incidences like where her dad would grab a hold of her brother Um and throw him up against a wall, you know, like when he was a teenager. But I, you know, I told her at the time, I said, Carrie, that's not, that's nothing. I mean, yeah. my, my, my dad and I, trust me, we had way worse physical altercations than that. And neither one of us is obviously a serial killer. Um, so I'll tell you what was a kind of interesting too. Um, when I got done talking to Carrie that, that the first time I met her, um, we, I said, Carrie, I've got to go. I've got to meet all those people I told you I was going to meet downtown. And so we we both go to the elevator. Elevator opens at the Fairmont Hotel in downtown Austin. Big elevator. And there was probably, I don't know how many people in there, but there were several people in there. It was a big elevator, and it was full. Doors closed. And I said, hey, guys, this is Carrie. This is BTK's daughter. And everybody in the elevator immediately looked at her. And there was a woman who had this a serial killer's daughter, the book, in a bag right next who was standing next to to Carrie. And on the front cover of this book, there are several pictures of Carrie and her father. And without skipping a beat, she pointed um, to the middle picture and said, that's a picture of me and my dad when we were at our favorite fishing hole. That, and then she pointed to another one. She goes, that's a picture of me and my dad um, at my college graduation. And then she pointed to the third picture and she goes, and that's a picture of my dad helping me put um, the star on top of our Christmas tree after he murdered our neighbor. And I'm pretty sure, and Carrie could correct me on this, um, I believe it was that woman um, who he actually took to his church after he murdered her and like displayed her in the church and took pictures. 
Yeah. Um, he was known to wear like, he would wear like women's clothing. He would stalk people. He, um, he had over a hundred of what he called projects. And sometimes they were fantasies in his head. Um, but sometimes they weren't there. He admitted that there were times like there was one woman that he tried to kill. And the only reason that he didn't kill her was because he kept waiting for her to come home and she wouldn't come home. She was out with some friends, and so she stayed out late, and the only thing that saved her life was that she just didn't come home. And he said it drove him crazy. And um, so anyway, so Andrew, this is how BTK got caught. He would send these letters, and he would um, mock the media. He would mock law enforcement. And so periodically, he would just send a letter because he liked, he liked the notoriety. Yeah, he liked the fame of it, and so in two thousand and I think it was two it was two thousand five is when he got arrested. I'm pretty sure. Make sure I have this order of events right. So he had a floppy disk, and he was going to send a message on this floppy disk. What he didn't realize he he actually asked law enforcement if they could trace anything off the floppy disk once it had been wiped, and law enforcement through the media they took out I think they took out um like a newspaper ad and said no we can't. That wasn't true. They were able to get, when he sent this floppy disk with this message, they were able to pull two bits of information off the metadata. They were able to pull two bits. One was the name Dennis, or no, take that back. It was the name of his church, and they were also able to get the last time it was modified, who, who was the last person to modify it, and it just said Dennis. Well, uh, they did a quick Google search, even in 2005, and... The first thing that popped up, he was the church council president for their church. And so they didn't have enough. Now, and I'm not as familiar with this part of the story, um, but there was before before the uh, floppy disk was sent, he had sent some messages. I think he threw like one message in the back of a truck. Yeah, it was weird. Like he like one time he like he like uh taped a message to like a stop sign and it ended up getting to the police. And then in another one he like threw um a message in the back of a random truck at like Home Depot. Mm-hmm. Well, they found the message and it got to the police. Well, they had a security camera at Home Depot and they saw this black Jeep. And so they knew they were looking for somebody with a black Jeep. Um now they had this guy's name was Dennis and they also had the church. church yeah. So they were able to figure out where he lived. They do a drive-by, and guess what they see in the, in the driveway? Black a black Jeep. Jeep. Yeah. So now, but that's still not enough to arrest him, obviously. They, you know, he could just be somebody who's... Um, littering in someone else's truck. Littering in somebody else's truck and sending fake messages to the police claiming to be BTK when he's not. Um, so what the police did was something that I thought was pretty inventive. Now, there's two... There's two um, versions of this story. I'm pretty sure Carrie told me a couple years ago, and if I'm wrong about this, Carrie, just text me and correct me, um, that she had had a, either a polyp removed or she had gotten some type of a pap smear or something like that when she was in college. And so the police became aware of this. And so what they decided to do is they got, um, a, um, they got a, 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 a warrant to get the pap smear so they could do some DNA testing. Oh. Yes. And so when they DNA tested whatever sample was taken from Carrie, um, 
they found that she was the uh, that she was the offspring of BTK, and so um, then at that point, then obviously they go to arrest him. Um, the story got out, and it was pretty you know. It was sensational when the when the story came out because and Carrie was very upset about one part of it because all of the media outlets CNN Fox News MSNBC all of them New York Times maybe not the New York Times but a bunch of them got it, the story kind of wrong they said that she had willingly given a DNA sample which wasn't true when the sample was when they confiscated the sample um, she wasn't even aware that her father was BTK. And so the police go to his house. This is something that he did pretty religiously every day um, is he would go home and eat lunch with his wife for like many, many years. And so the day that he got arrested, he goes to eat lunch with his wife. The police are there and they say, do you know why we're here? And he smiled and said, I think I have a pretty good idea. And Carrie, at the same time, she's living in Michigan. Her dad had just helped her and her husband, then husband, move to Michigan because she got a job as a teacher or teacher's assistant, something like that. And she said that they had noticed somebody in the neighborhood, and they they didn't they thought he might just be like a prowler, you know. Mm-hmm. But it turned out he was an FBI agent. Oh. And eventually, he came in, knocked on the door, and said, "I'm with the FBI," you know. And he she he finally convinced her. Um, which I will say this about Carrie. Carrie is a very intelligent, methodic person. Like if you meet her and you get to know her, you you can understand why she would be. She's very perceptive. Like she would yeah. be looking out the window, and she was she would notice things. Um, and she did say that that was part of living with her dad because that was kind of the environment they grew up in. Um, so she said that, you know, her mom called and said, I need you to come back to Wichita. This thing is happening. And so she has to go to the airport to catch a plane. And of course, Andrew, this is back in 2005 when, you know, there's TV, like there's, there were like TVs, you know, like you go to an airport now, you don't see very many TVs, but there used to be TVs all over the place. And she said, I'm sitting in this airport looking up at all these TVs, and here's my dad in this red jumpsuit being walked across this parking lot in handcuffs, and everybody is staring at my dad. There's thousands of people in this airport. Every single human being is watching it. And I'm, and they don't even know it, but I'm standing right there, and that's my dad. Yeah. And so um, anyway... Now, Carrie did have some communication with her dad. They would exchange letters. Um, after the, the fact? Like after, okay. after his arrest, yeah. And I asked her, I said, I said explain that to me. And she said, it, it's hard because the world knows my dad is BTK. I know my dad is Dennis Rader, and they're two different people. Yeah. You know, one is my dad who... You know, she in her in her book she talks about them going to the Grand Canyon, going on this big hike. You know, um, she said she told me back in 2021. She goes a day before he got arrested. You know, he was my best friend, and so it was difficult for her to give up her father. And so she's she's gone to a lot of counseling and a lot of therapy yeah, and the stuff trust like that. Alone that probably is lost and 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 being scared to trust is I, I couldn't imagine. I mean, I don't, I don't know if she talk to any about that, but I can't imagine losing trust in somebody that's supposed to be your number one protector or confidant, you know? Absolutely. And so she would exchange letters, but she didn't actually go and see him. And um, so she didn't see him for many, many years. Finally, I think in 2019 or 2020, somewhere in there, she stopped communication with him because she found out that people were 
essentially what was happening is they were sending pictures of like some of his crime scenes into the prison. He would sign them and then they would give him money somehow, some way. And so he reached a celebrity status. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, Andrew, it's, this is what's crazy. She told me this last weekend. She said that his minions who support him will threaten, they've threatened her life on social media. So, yeah, wrap your mind around that. Yeah. You have this notorious convicted serial killer who has fans and minions who are threatening his daughter because his... And here's the reason why they're threatening her, Andrew, is because he is now the primary suspect in a couple of other murders. Oh. And we'll have this in the show notes. If you, It'll either be in the show notes um, or it'll definitely be on our Facebook posts. But we're going to have some pictures, some elaborate drawings that... Uh, Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK, did of these um, young females who are bound and gagged in um, in this. It's in a barn or a silo setting. And here's the thing, Andrew. He had some fantasies about creating a torture chamber inside a grain silo and torturing people. He he wrote about it. He talked about it. And so um, they actually have formed a BTK task force to actually um, to, to, to see if he has other victims in other states. And the, the states they're looking at right now are Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, and Arkansas. And part of the reason is because when he was installing these ADT cameras in the 70s and 80s, those were some of the states he would travel to to install these cameras. And let me see if... I want to make sure I get this girl's name right. Let's see here. So, Andrew, in 1976, there was a girl named Cynthia Kinney. She was 16 years old, and she worked at a laundromat in Powhuska, Oklahoma. She vanished. I think I'm right about this. One of the drawings that they've recently come up with, Mm -hmm. um, they think looks like her, could possibly be her. And um, her body was never found. Obviously, this girl was bound in an old barn somewhere or something that looked like an old barn. And Andrew, you've seen the pictures mm-hmm. and you're, you're, I say you're an artist, you know, yeah. you're, you're a photographer. So you, you know this. And Andrew, you said, you know, these pictures were, in your opinion, taken from, they were drawn from real life, right? Yeah, it was definitely from what I've looked at with George in our brief moment, looking at it together. It, it It's detailed that like, it's lighting and detail and shade that would be out of care for wanting to to look at it in a uh, like a pornographic state. Honestly, just like something of a mesmerizing. It seems like. And so, what's what's interesting about this is this this town is kind of on the Oklahoma Kansas border. It's about two hours from where BTK lived at the time. There's also a Boy Scout camp there <coughs> that he was known to uh, frequent mm-hmm. um, in that town. Also, across the street, they were building a bank and they were putting in a security system, an ADT security system, when she vanished. Wow. So he is now the primary suspect in that case. There's another case out of Missouri, uh, Shauna Beth Garber. Um, she was 22. Um, her body was found in Lonigan, Missouri. Um, they found a picture in, um, BTK's possession that looked like a red blanket that matched one that was missing with Garber. 
Um, and so now they're trying to see if they can find, actually find the actual blanket and um, to see if they can do some comparisons. But he's also the um, primary suspect in that. And so um, there's another one. Um, let me see here. Yeah, there's another another victim that's in a green dress, and I think I showed you that picture too. Um, and she's bound and gagged inside a barn. And then Osage County, which is also in Oklahoma, uh, Eddie Viren, he told CNN the woman is believed to have gone missing in 91 and was from southeast Kansas. And so he is credibly the primary suspect in two or even three additional murders now. And what's interesting about these pictures, Andrew, is that they don't match any of the victims that he's ever um, been convicted of killing. He was known to draw pictures of his other victims. So it wouldn't have been uncommon for him to do that. Um, and, you know, he's, I hate to say it, but he's actually a pretty good artist. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely something that you can tell is practiced. Yeah. <coughs> so, Andrew, um, what's happening now is they have formed this BTK task force um, from law enforcement, and Carrie's actually a central part of this. Part of... Um, part of the process that she had to go through is she actually had to go into the prison and confront her father for the first time in 18 years. So she had this restraint, she had a restraining order where he couldn't communicate with her lifted. And she went to the prison to talk to him. And this was very recent. Um, Her and I had communicated, I think before she went um, that some big stuff was going on with her dad's case and that she was going to be doing this. And, um, you know, I think it was probably in the national media. I think in August they went and dug up parts of the property where Dennis Rader and his family lived, and they found some stuff. They found a hidey hole. That found they found some other evidence, and they haven't released everything. There's more to him being a primary suspect in some of these other cases because he also took um, trinkets, and you know, he took items to memorialize the crimes that he committed, mm-hmm. and so. Um, you know, Carrie told me it's hard for her to imagine that he would have had fantasies about these girls in these barns being tied up and doing things to them. It would be hard for her to imagine that he could have these fantasies and not have possibly acted out on them. And so, Andrew, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. Mm-hmm. And when we come back, um, we're going to play our interview that we did with Carrie Rowson. Um, she is the daughter of BTK, a very, very brave um very brave woman who's trying to uh, find some justice for some other potential victims. Um, So we're going to play that interview and we're going to let her speak in her own words about her um, conversation with her father and some other aspects of what's going on right now in these cases. And we'll be right back. Deborah Sue Williamson turned off her television, grabbed her keys and purse and puzzle book as she readied to head out the door. The newlywed 18-year-old was supposed to meet her husband, Doug, at work. As she entered the carport of their home that night, something went terribly wrong. She was stabbed 17 times, and to this day, her murderer remains free. Read about Debbie's case in the newly released book, Silent Silhouette, written by investigative journalist George Jarrett and his investigative partner, Army Counterintelligence Officer Jennifer Buchholz. Read how the team tracked down the case file, original witnesses and suspects, and a story that stretches from the Texas deserts to the Ozark Mountains in Missouri, to the Mississippi Delta. The team had two simple burning questions they wanted answers to. Who killed Deborah Sue and why? 
Get a copy of Silent Silhouette on Amazon today or wherever you get your books. You, when you and I talked in Austin in 2021, you told me that you had not talked to your father face-to-face since 2005, right? Um, I had not. The last time I saw my dad was in um, December of 2004. That's right. Um, I was home for Christmas. Um, I was married. I had been married like 18 months, and we flew home for our, like, our first Christmas with like them. Yeah. And my brother came home from the Navy, and we stayed at my parents' house. So we stayed in like that room, in a guest room that I had helped paint. It was my brother's old room. And then, like, two months later, we found out there was, like, BTK evidence right under that bed. Oh, my God. And so I had had, like, no conversations with my father other than through letters for, like, between 05 and 2017. We were writing regularly off and on. And then I had to start cutting off communication because... Like, as I was becoming known and writing a book, he wanted to write a book with me. Like, he wanted to make, like, a chap art book. And so I told him, like, no, that's not happening. And then he was, like, trying to insert his narcissism in there with, like, you know, because I was becoming known and he wanted to, like, I would be in the media and then he would show up in the media. Right. And so by 2021, what had happened was I found out he was using, like, the black market, murder, mobilia market, and making massive profit. Yes. So, like, there's the Son of Sam law. He was skirting it around because he's not allowed to profit from his crimes. And, Carrie, what you mean by that is he was, people were sending him pictures of, like, let's say, crime scenes that he was involved with. He would sign them. They would pay him money, and then they would, he, they, it would get sent back out of the prison, right? Yeah, and because he skirts the laws by get, by doing gifting, so he, he um, if, if, if he just gives you art and they give you money, then he skirts the law. Right. Because he's not selling. Right. And so he has a couple thousand dollars in his bank account just from, like, this racket. And then things were being sent out of, like, through the black market prison system, knotted sweatpants, um, old shoes that are marked stamped Raider, gold fillings came out, old glasses. And then he thought the stuff, he knew he was profiting. He even tried to get my family involved, like, in profiting through his art way back in 2015. So I was contacting law enforcement. I was contacting local media. I'm trying to get some, like, eyes on all of that. And right. so what happened by 21, he was doing all that. He was, And then he was signing, like, crime scene photos. And so he had signed a crime scene photo of Josie Otero, who, who was murdered in yeah. 74. She was... Um, 11 and strangled by my father and he was signing a crime scene photo of her with his BTK signature and that was sent to me in like February of 21 and I said like that's it I'm done dad and I contacted um, Kansas Department of Corrections Wichita Eagle um, Eldorado Correction Facility um, Wichita Police Department I asked all of them to help me and they quickly said we need to give you victim services and they stepped in and they said do you want to sign a do not contact order so I signed a do not contact order with dad in March of 21. It was issued the day before his birthday. I would have like loved to have seen that. He signed it. So there was no contact for like two years. And what also was happening was I was getting cyber stalked. So he has this like flying minions and flying monkeys um, that he uses. And they'll, they'll use him to try to get to me. And so there's people that are threatening my life 
or like through Are social you media. Me? Yeah, I have people stalking me and threatening my life to like attract his attention, or he's using people to try to get to me, and that was all going on. And so that's why we signed the do not contact order. But I'm still dealing like daily with like that reality. Wow. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. So you hadn't talked to your dad in a couple of years or communicated with him. What prompted, I, I guess my understanding is, is that there was a missing girl, a girl went missing in Oklahoma in 1976. She went missing from a laundromat. Is that what started this whole effort to try to identify potential new victims that your father may have may have murdered? Yeah, so what happened in January of, of this year of 23 is my dad contacted a media outlet um, and said, you know, I've been, he had been approached by Osage County Sheriff's Office about Cynthia Kenny, um, who was, has been missing since 76 from Pawhuska, Oklahoma. And that hit the news. And so I was like, this doesn't fit Dad's MO. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. And that was going on for four or five months. These components were coming out. My dad was releasing it to, the, to this outlet, but nobody else was paying any attention. And I was trying to tell other outlets, like, look, this is going on. And nobody would touch it because that primary source was Dad. So people weren't touching it. Right. Then, then it was released in, in May about Shauna Beth Garber, an unsolved murder in Missouri from 91. And when I looked at the photos that are public, like there's heavy bondage you know um, like when her body was dumped was left with all this heavy bondage um, when I looked at the photo I said oh god that could be dad and that's when I contacted McDonald County in Missouri and then got in contact with Osage County Oklahoma and that's how I got involved in the investigations and so they pulled me in like as a witness to come in and help like co- cooperate on this investigation and help build these components that we're looking at now wow and a part of that process was you agreed to go and talk to your dad in prison, and you hadn't seen him in face-to-face in 18, almost 19 years. And what was that like? Um, it, was, it was pretty intense, like, to go in with, like, Dad. Um, I've gone in a handful of times now to see him, and, it, I mean, it's a lot, but, like, it's important... Um, it's important, like, to help with these cases. Mm-hmm. So, like, I wouldn't have been able to go in, like, just, I wouldn't have done it. Like, I wouldn't have gone in on my own. Like, I had resolved, like, I wouldn't see him again. But because I, there's, there's, there's missing women and unsolved cases and, like, all these unknowns, I was willing to go in and face him and deal with it. And so, like, I'm going in now to help with the um, investigations and, like, talk with my father and um, have, like, pretty serious conversations about this stuff. And, so. Carrie, a part of it is that they found these drawings, and they're very detailed drawings, and they're they're public now. They were out there. I think you told me years ago that your dad had impulses and that he couldn't, if he drew these things, it wasn't because he was just thinking about it. He would have had to have acted these things out. Do you, Is that what you believe? I believe, like, some of them are so descriptive, like, that black and white drawing, especially we're seeing with, like, insane details and the angle where he's sitting up in the extra, like, little bit of a little loft and he's looking down and he's so specific with, like, like the the lines on the hay and on her face and her bondage. And if you look carefully, if you zoom in, you see, like, clip, like, on her leg, on her bondage. So you see varying, various bondages. I don't think that's just fantasy. And so we're trying to determine as a task force, is that fantasy or is that 
reality did he actually kidnap her and then like do something with her and who is that and we we have many many of these to to like solve and like we're going to be at this a really long time do you think it's possible that he drew these from real life like he was there when it happened or took pictures it's a hard call like he does have a very strong visual memory Mm -hmm. He either, we have the three, we have possibilities. He either did kidnap these women, draw them in person, and then um, they're either unsolved murders or they're missing women. Or he saw a missing persons report, built in details of possibly their clothing, and is, is like influenced by that, but he didn't actually abduct these women. Or they're straight fantasy, but there's, some of them are so insanely detailed. And then there's ones he uses color, and we don't know why. We don't know why some are a certain style, and then there's an evolution of styles. So right now we have, we don't know, like we have ideas on some of them, but we don't know right now, like, how to match them. We're working on that, right? right? And so we're looking at, like, using a forensic artist with the task force and, like, using, like, AI technology to like maybe pull out some of those details and so like Lauren Malloy with um, the task force like she's up in Rhode Island she's working on an unsolved case of her mom's like her mom was murdered Mm -hmm. or we believe she was they're trying to solve that she's she does like AI technology like for missing persons or does and so Mm -hmm. we're hoping to maybe like apply her technology like to their images you said I, I read this that you had said that you didn't believe that your dad. You believe that if your dad drew these pictures and had these fantasies, because I've heard things that he would use terms like a bad day at the wash, especially talking about the girl specifically in Oklahoma who was kidnapped at the laundromat, and that he also had fantasies about kidnapping a woman out of a laundromat. You, I, I read that you had said that you didn't think your dad could have these um, fantasies and not act out on them. Do you still feel that way? Well, up until, like, the last several months, like, Dad said he kept a lot of fantasies to keep things at bay. So, like, he would oh, okay. he would, he would would route his energies into these and fantasize. And he had, he has, like, like over 100 projects, right? But, like, we only have 10, well, seven cases, 10 people that we know were murdered. But we have 100 projects. Now, some of those are breaking and enterings, or some of those are attempted kidnappings. And I think the public is really missing that whole attempted kidnapping component. Yeah. And he talks about it in Ramsland's book. And if you look at his project list over and over, there's attempted kidnappings and there's breaking and enterings. And so now we're, we're, we're trying to talk out to the public to say, if, like, there's been people and the public and um, sheriff has has said on record there's at least five people that are saying there were there were assaults or attempted kidnappings with my father and here i've been getting emails for years from people and like that my dad was in their house or something and i just i outright like literally dismissed it right mm-hmm. and now like i'm realizing i could have had some kind of massing component in my email and i didn't know Wow. And so we're asking people to come forward with, like, their witness reports because if we can keep building these cases, like, say, if he's stolen a car or what he has done or that MO is different, then we can start matching it to these, like, unknowns. Wow. So I need to go to the victim, yep. like, the thing at 530. Yep. So if we want to walk back. Well. Absolutely. 
Diamond State Murder Board, written and hosted by George Jared, co-hosted and produced by Andrew Brown, music by Rush Pate, voiceover work done by me, Jessica Parker. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Diamond State MB. Download us wherever you get your podcasts.